A former employee of Smokin' Joe's Corner is in jail tonight on three counts of murder. Police say 19-year-old Ralph Stokes of West Philadelphia gunned down three people during a robbery last Thursday at the restaurant in the Winfield section of the city. One-time heavyweight boxing champ Joe Frazier is a part owner of the eatery. Frazier was not at the restaurant at the time of the incident. Police are searching for a second suspect whose identity has not been released. Lieutenant Edward Funk says several thousand dollars was taken during the robbery and has not yet been recovered. Police arrested Stokes without incident at his home Tuesday evening and charged him with three counts of murder, two counts of attempted murder, two counts of reckless endangerment, and two counts of aggravated assault. Stokes was also charged with one count each of robbery, theft, conspiracy, receiving stolen property, and firearms violations. Funk said Stokes once worked at the restaurant, but did not know when the suspect's employment ended or the circumstances under which he left the job. According to police, two employees who witnessed the murders said one of the victims, 38-year-old restaurant co-manager Mary Louise Figueroa, apparently recognized the voice of one of the suspects, both of whom wore red ski masks. Employees told police Mrs. Figueroa said, I can't believe they're doing this to us. Police say the gunman herded four restaurant employees into a walk-in freezer, shot the lock off the restaurant safe, then rifled through the safe. They then returned to the freezer and opened fire, killing Mrs. Figueroa and 35-year-old Eugene Jefferson, a dishwasher at the restaurant. Police say the other two employees were not injured. Police say the third victim, 23-year-old postal worker Peter Santangelo, apparently walked into the restaurant to deliver mail during the robbery and was gunned down as he tried to flee. From Death by Incarceration and in association with Crawl Space Media, this is Injustice, an advocacy-focused wrongful conviction podcast. Welcome back to Injustice. My name is Spencer Daniels. Our next story is the case of a man named Ralph Trent Stokes. March 11th, 1982. Smoke and Joe's Corner, a neighborhood barbecue restaurant in Philadelphia, accounts former heavyweight boxing champion Smoke and Joe Frazier, uh, not only as its namesake, but also as part owner, was robbed. Now, during the commission of this robbery, three people were killed. Two masked gunmen entered the restaurant and by the time they walked out, Mary Louise Figueroa and Eugene Robinson, employees at the restaurant, as well as Peter Santangelo, a postal worker who stepped into a wrong place, wrong time situation, were all dead. Ralph Trent Stokes, a 19-year-old kid who had once worked as a short-order cook at Smokin' Joe's, became the target of a corrupt Philadelphia justice system. Now, I've made no secret of my disdain, my contempt for the vile district attorney of that time, Roger King. Nothing has changed as far as that goes. Because here's the deal. Ralph Trent Stokes was innocent. Though, due to that corruption, Ralph was arrested and put on trial. And now, in 2022... 40 years later, Ralph is still there on death row. And so, along with my co-host, Lisa Spies, and our friends uh, from the world of advocacy, we want to further get Ralph's story out to the public. In all those 40 years, Ralph's case has received little fanfare. 
And with the exception of a single podcast episode, this case has gone relatively under the radar of a society that's otherwise obsessed with true crime and and stories of wrongful conviction. Now, it should be noted that that one single podcast episode was a great one. Uh, Ralph's story was highlighted on the Unjust and Unsolved podcast from the great Maggie Freeling. Maggie is a, is a friend of the podcast, and she will actually feature somewhat prominently in our telling of this story. And Ralph's case is, is complex and definitely deserving of much more than just a single episode to tell it, so we hope you'll stick around and listen to the whole thing. Now, Maggie will also weigh in, not only on Ralph's case specifically, but how she got involved. She'll also speak to the larger conversation of of advocacy work in general and how others can get involved in the fight. As we go through the events of that day in, in March of 1982 and the subsequent days, events that led us here today, you'll not only hear portions of our conversation with Maggie, you'll also hear from Ralph himself. So let's get into it. Can you tell us a little bit about your childhood and growing up and your family dynamic? Growing up in the household, it was my father, my mother, me, and three other brothers and my younger sister. I'm the oldest. My father, he was a longshoreman, so he would get home late and go to work early. Maybe leave five, six in the morning, he was gone. So my mom, she was home uh, all day. I guess the most part of raising us. I always grew up with family in my life. They was always, you know, there was always plenty of them around, you know. So family was always there. So, you know, there was always plenty of people always around. So that was good. I got a lot of good memories. Always loved animals. Different times we had dogs and couldn't keep, was too young, so really couldn't, me myself, take care of them. So we would have them to get rid of them, get more, but always grew up. I think I might have, now that you're talking about the dogs, we might have started off with, uh, I might have started off with fish, turtles, which grew to other things. Eventually I had snakes. You know, when that wasn't even really popular for people to have, loved animals. And because I loved animals, I loved learning about geography, uh, where they came from, always wanted to travel, things uh, like that. So real great friends from my block that I have to this day who are, some of them are more family to me than other families. So I I, got a lot of great memories as a child. Made it to 10th grade and I just started hanging out with friends, not going to school. So I, it was really like my my attention. I couldn't keep my attention there, the focus there. Then girlfriends, so my attention was somewhere else. The, the things I liked, I, I could focus it just to school and. What made what I was bored of in school, so 
That's why my attention couldn't really stay there. You know, I really wanted to start working uh, with my father as a longshoreman. I wanted to get down there, so they were trying to open up. I had to get 700 hours. That just always seemed like it was it it was just impossible to reach. So I would I worked at a pet shop, a different restaurants, and even the, the case that I'm in uh, prison for uh, Joe Frazier's restaurant. I even worked in there two different occasions. Wherever I could find a job that was paying, that was paying more, I was interested in moving on uh, to it. Well, when I was home, I would give my mom some money. Once I gave my mom some money, then after that, I just had enough money to last me to the next pay. I really didn't even have too much to buy clothes or anything. So it was just enough just to get me there to the, to the finish line, to the next pay. My mom, she didn't ask for anything. I just, I just gave her what, what I could give her. She was, she was cool with that, you know. We had our problems. Mom and pop didn't always get along. But um, we were always all there. Yeah, I wanted to work with him because even though he worked at long hours, it was actually, it was easy, you know. I wanted to pay, I wanted to pay my own way. I didn't want to ask no one for nothing. Eventually get my own apartment, stuff like that, and kitchen jobs here and there. I even worked in a horse stable that played less than that, and... And the work was the hardest I ever did all day long. And at the end of the day, all we really wanted to do was just ride the horse. The guy who owned the, the stable, Pelzer stable, he actually, he was taking advantage of us by having us work there. And at the end of the day, he knew that all we wanted to do was ride the horses. So... By the time uh, we got finished, it may be two hours left. We sat up the horses and go out in the park and run with the horses until my father and them found out and put an end to that. They didn't have no problem with working, but what we was getting, what we was getting paid to work, you know, maybe like twenty dollars a week, and we was working as hard as any other man that was working uh, eight hours a day, cleaning stalls, feeding horses all day long. Then you got to fight with the horse, all all them different moods, bite, kick you, uh, step on your feet. So I remember going home at the end of the day, my mom would let me in the house. I would have to take off all that stuff outside before I, I came in the house. The smell pretty, uh, I mean, smell pretty bad working there all day long, mucking stalls, and then got to do it at least twice a day. As soon as you come in, you do that, then you feed the horses, and by the time you finish, you got to water them, and before you know it, you got to do it all over again. And then the day is, uh, the day is over. You know, some of the uh, stalls and all that we had to do that too, you know. But like I said, I loved animals. We might be talking about 
I don't know, maybe about 12, 13 years old doing that, that kind of work. We'll pick it up on the other side of this break as we listen to a word from today's sponsors. This is something that, that struck me as I was reading this recently, is that the the whole crime, this whole robbery, took place in a very short amount of time, right? Yep. So it's just before 1 o'clock on, uh, on March 11th, 1982. Two masked gunmen come into Smoke and Joe's Corner, a uh, barbecue restaurant in Philadelphia owned by Smoke and Joe Frazier. All right, so it's about three hours before opening, and the crew is all in the restaurant. We've got Mary Figueroa, Eugene Robinson, Pierre Blassingame, and Renard Mills. Two masked gunmen come in through the kitchen. They heard three of them, Blassingame, Robinson, and Mills, into the walk-in freezer. They then go to the office where Mary Figueroa is, I don't know if she's counting money or she was in the safe. In, in some aspect, she was in the office. So they grab her, they take her, put her in the walk-in freezer, and they, they put a lock on the door, but they don't latch it. Good so far? Mm-hmm. Okay. They go back to the, to the office, and they empty the safe, which reports vary, but it's somewhere in the neighborhood of $4,000. It's less than $4,000, including like $500 in change. And while they're gathering that stuff up, Mary apparently makes a statement to the other people in the walk-in that she thinks one of the perpetrators is Trent. She calls him Trent. He used to work at Smoke and Joe's. But she thinks one of them is Ralph Trent Stokes. All right, the, the timeline gets a little screwy for me at a couple of points. But I think after they gather the money, they go back to the, to the walk-in, and that's when the shots are fired. Mm-hmm. Some, somebody opens, the, opens the, the, the walk-in door, fires two shots, killing Mary and Eugene, and, and then apparently there's a, a misfire of the gun where Blassingame and Mills are spared, right? Is it, they, it was a misfire or a miss. It was a misfire, right? I think it was a misfire. That's what I remember reading. Right. Okay. So about this time, a, a young man named Peter Santangelo enters the restaurant. Peter is a 23-year-old postal carrier who was was putting himself through college, pursuing his master's degree in criminal justice, ironically. Santangelo will end up being an incredibly important piece of this whole puzzle before we're all said and done. Probably the most important. And we'll get we'll get to that later. So Santangelo is killed trying to run for the door. They then return to the walk-in. They come in, they open it, they shoot. The, the mailman comes in, 
and then they go back to the walk-in? They would have had to because the blood and barbecue sauce mixture on the shoes that they said that was on Ralph's shoes wouldn't have been there the first time. They would have had to open that up again. They would have had to Is the way I kind of always put it together in my head. Right. Okay. So, and, and so this brings up interesting points, questions. So Blasting Game and Mills, were they spared? I mean, do, and this is just going to be opinion, but do we really think that the gun misfired and then they go shoot the mailman which the, with the gun working perfectly and then they come back again and the, and the gun misfires a second time? Is it possible that Blasting Game and Mills were spared because they were, I don't want to say in on it, but maybe they knew about it. Maybe in return for sparing their lives, they end up testifying against Ralph. Is that a possibility? I don't think Blasting Game ever testified at the trial. That's true. I'll have, I'll have to go back and look at that, but I don't think he ever testified. And I think that the prosecution said that he didn't testify because he was too traumatized by the events. But I think there was something else about it that they didn't want him to come in and testify, period. Right. I definitely think there are a lot of things about the crime that lead me to believe that it was an inside job or that they had help from someone or information from someone who was there that day. But we can't say that, you know, we can't say that definitively, but there are signs that make me believe that. And, you know, like you said, with the timing of Mary and Eugene getting shot and then the doors closed and then Mr. Santangelo shot and then they come back to the freezer, you know, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense about the misfire or that. Now, it, it do, I do think that there was probably a missed shot at some point, at least in my mind, the way when I read it and they talk about the barbecue sauce going all over the floor. Remember, it was those big, like, you know, like restaurant size containers of barbecue sauce or whatever that was in there. And that went all over the floor and there was a mixture of the blood and barbecue sauce. So to me, there was a missed shot. That's but that's just the way that I read it. Okay, That makes sense. Yeah, it's, it was a little unclear whether it was a miss or a misfire. The two misfires doesn't make sense. So what you're saying probably makes more. My personal belief is Renard Mills was involved. I mean, that's what I believe. Yeah. And I don't think they wanted Blasting Game to testify, maybe because he heard things. Maybe he heard Mills saying something to him. I don't know. I also think when you were talking about Mary Louise and her statement, if I remember correctly, what was on the police notes was looks like Trent's eyes. And then that's crossed out. And says, then the police wrote above it or below it was Trent's eyes. I don't think that she ever said, I think it's Trent. I think she said, it looked like Trent's eyes. Or it sounded like Trent's voice or something like that. Yeah, I think I think for for Mary Louise, it was the voice. There was there was one of the one of the other There's people testified the it was. And one, yeah. Right. One that says the eyes and one that said the voice. But I remember on both of the police reports about that statement they're crossed out and it says was Trent's voice or whatever it was right which is crazy like why would you even write that down and then cross it out to me I'd be like starting over to make it look real legit right you know from my writing my parent signature on my 
report card days or whatever. Right, I yeah. Whatever. Okay, so you think it was Mills. I, I, I do too. I mean, there, there was there was definitely somebody else involved, somebody that knew, you know, the, the schedule, the layout of the restaurant, so, somebody who worked there, and, and that's probably, you know, how Ralph got sort of roped into this thing because he had worked there in the past. Right. And it's easy to say that he was a disgruntled. It's easy to say that anybody that used to work there is a disgruntled ex-employee, even though there's no evidence of that. Like he literally just didn't tell them about vacation. He went on vacation and he never went back. Like that's the big gist of it. Right. I already had scheduled a trip with my mom and them uh, to the Poconos Mountains to Rockin' Horse Ranch. And I went and for his it stupid as it sounds, don't make no sense. I never told them when I went back to work. And I should have, it was only for a weekend. And I just left, went there on a uh, trip to there and never went back. So I, I guess a part of me never really wanted to go back and find myself back there. So when we, we got back, I never, I never went back. I never said anything. So which I should have told them when I got the job that I that was already scheduled. But as time went on and it was moving closer and closer and I never told them, I felt it hard to tell them. You know. This is as simple as that. There was no no conflict or anything with anybody in there. So right. by the time I got back I just never said nothing and I never went back. So I was on my I was out there again looking for another a new job. Actually, the day this case happened, a friend of mine, Dow Stanley, he had a job down Center City. I grew up with Dow. He used to work at Smoking Joe's. He was working on cars. He was driving cars, delivering stuff. So we was trying to get me a job down there, even though I didn't have license, but I could be a passenger with him, help him delivering the stuff to go down there. But uh, whoever we supposed to see in that day, we end up did. They was in the end of something. I think actually at the last minute that was uh, canceled and was going to date. Supposed to be moved to another day down there. I also think them knowing to enter through the kitchen and about what time for them to be there. Like, it makes sense that, you know, it, it wasn't inside. Someone was helping them with yeah. information. Yeah, I mean, clearly the front door was unlocked because the mailman came in through it. So it wasn't like, it wasn't that the front door was locked, so they had to come in through the kitchen. They knew to come in through the kitchen. Right. Yeah. Do you remember off the top of your head what time the the postal, the postman came in? Because I was thinking it was at two, but that that can't be right if, if they came in right at one. Yeah, and the police report says that the the call to police from Peter was initially Peter, and he had to hand off the phone to somebody else. Came at one thirty. That's that's why I was okay, saying this whole thing okay, happened I, so fast. Right. Like there's a lot of moving parts to have to have taken place in a half an hour. To me, too, it talks about how impulsive these perpetrators would have been. If it was Ralph, like in my mind, I I just can't see him wanting to hurt somebody. 
if he, I, I can't even see him being involved in a robbery, first of all. But even if he was, I could not imagine him hurting anybody while doing it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And we know about Donald Jackson's history. Like, he had no problem hurting people all different kinds of ways and being very impulsive and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. It just... How anybody could talk to him for five minutes and legit think that he was involved. You know what I mean? Not that that's like proof in a court of law, but it's just ridiculous to it, me. It is. It, it's absurd once once you, once you get to talking to him and you, and you know him. Right. Okay, so that's that's... That's the basics of what happened, right? Is there any yeah. anything else? Nope. I, I would I would mention like once we get past this part, like that three people were seen when they left. Yeah, that's that is just something... because there are p- certain parts of it, like witness reports that we have, like that that doesn't even fit in the story that you know King told at trial or different things. You know, mm-hmm. they were saying it's two people, but we have three people seen together leaving with the overalls afterwards, you know, yeah. I just think it's important to show those little, the inconsistencies there. Okay. Well, you brought up Donald Jackson. Um, so let's go through, um, let's go through each of the principles of the case. So we know about Roger King. And if, if you want to hear more about him, we did a whole episode dedicated to Roger King in our previous series romance and murder streets of philadelphia we will get out of philadelphia one of these days there are plenty of other states and plenty of other corrupt systems for us to deal with and also i wanted to throw out the potential name for this series barbecue sauce and blood down at smoke and joe's anyway let's not let's let's not let's not talk about that too much on the next episode of injustice my name is maggie Freeling. I am a podcaster and journalist, and I predominantly work in wrongful convictions. Knowing it's a Roger King case, at the minimum, it should it deserves a second look because it's a Roger King case. And I think there's a really good chance of that happening. I think Roger King had already decided that Ralph was the one that was going to be held accountable for this crime. The famous saying they use fruits of the poisonous tree, something that started out falls how wrong how could it ever be right you can't never make it right because it started off false it's not it's not right sometimes i feel like i take one step forward two steps backward thank you for listening to the injustice podcast look advocacy never sleeps so between now and our next episode please help us by getting the word out about this podcast about this case hell about this man and there's a lot of things you can do Share our social media posts. Uh, we're on Instagram and Twitter and TikTok and Facebook. F- find us. All the links will be in the show notes. Also, follow Free Ralph Stokes on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Uh, we encourage you to use the hashtag Free Ralph Stokes. Let's show Ralph we all support him. With enough eyes on this case, it could encourage movement from Larry Krasner's office in Philadelphia and the CIU, the Conviction Integrity Unit. Go to freeralphstokes.org. There you can sign his petition, donate to his GoFundMe. Uh, I think it was around $8,000 last time I checked. Let's set our short-term goal to get that over $10,000 by the end of this series. We have about a month. I think we can do it 
but we need your help. So please share. As always, we appreciate if you could rate and review us. Uh, tell all your friends to listen. Social media pages for both Lisa and myself will also be in the show notes. So give us a follow. Uh, stay up to date with everything we're doing. Anyway, that's it. That's the episode. Thanks for listening. Bye. The Injustice Podcast is brought to you in association with Death by Incarceration. Thank you to Crawlspace Media. Sound design, audio post-production, Jason Usry. Special thanks for original music to Bernaldo Rivaldi. Check out all his great stuff on iTunes and Spotify, Bandcamp, wherever you get your music. Please support independent artists. Right now is a, a real tough time for creatives. Go to InjusticePod.com for more information, including what are the great podcasts we are listening to. You can